0: Globally, we're at the point now where the, the best estimates of the number of refugees is above 35 million. My mind doesn't quite know what to do with 35 million people. Yeah, like, yeah. But, you know, It's hard to wrap your mind around that number of people. But what we have found is often it's when you know one person.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian
2: faith intersects all avenues of today's culture, through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to The Conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley.
1: And I'm Benjamin Quinn.
2: Today we'll talk with Matthew Sorens of World Relief about human dignity and the many humanitarian crises going on in the world right now. And after that, we're going to have a special edition of On My Bookshelf with author Jennifer Blakely. But
1: first it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we talk about some aspect of the headline news, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a distinctly Christian perspective. In today's edition of the Headlines, let's talk about pop culture, particularly a sad issue, a recent celebrity death.
3: Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. And as Dr. Quinn alluded to last weekend, actor Matthew Perry passed away. Perry is best known from the sitcom Friends, but Perry is also known for his many battles with things like substance abuse and addiction during his life. Dr. Keithley, Dr. Quinn, uh, let me read you something that Perry wrote in his recent memoir that came out this year. I'm going to read this to you and I want you all to react to it as pastors that you are. He says, I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life. I'm still working through it personally, but the best thing about me is that if an alcoholic or drug addict comes up to me and says, will you help me, I will always say yes. I know how to do that. I will do that for you, even if I can't always do it for myself. So I do that whenever I can in groups or one-on-one. And I created the Perry House in Malibu, a sober living facility for men. I also wrote my play, The End of Longing, which is a personal message to the world, an exaggerated form of me as a drunk, I had something important to say to people like me and to people who love people like me. When I die, I know people will talk about friends, 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 and I'm glad of that, happy that I've done some solid work as an actor, as well as giving people multiple chances to make fun of my struggles on the World Wide Web. But when I die, as far as my so-called accomplishments go, it would be nice if friends were listed far behind the things I did to try to help other people. I know it won't happen, but it would be nice. So that's what Perry wrote in his memoir, and it seems a little prophetic given his, his tragic passing just this past weekend. Now, we have no reason to believe that Perry was a Christian, so we do want to have that kind of way in the back of our minds. But undoubtedly, many of our listeners either know people who are like Perry and that they have struggled and dealt with uh, alcoholism or addictions, or maybe some of our listeners themselves struggle with these things. So really, I just want to pivot from his life and look to our listeners, how can we help people navigate the challenge of addiction?
2: Yeah, listening to what you just read that uh, Matthew Perry wrote, it's particularly poignant and impressive. Now, I am one of the few Americans who actually was an adult in the 1990s who did not watch Friends. I don't think I've ever watched an entire episode of the show. Not quite sure why that is. It just never did do much for me. So as a result, whenever his death was announced over the weekend— And on the news, people were making such a big deal out of it. I was a little surprised, and and I was struck by the impact that his death has had. And it's clear that culturally speaking, Friends as a TV show uh, was significant, and he played a significant role in it. As he just said, he'd rather that not be the thing front and center. And I don't know a, a whole lot more about him, but just from what was written, you can't help but feel for him, that this is someone, even though he experienced success and fame and all of the things that go with it in a way that less than one-tenth of one percent of all human beings will ever experience, it sounds like he also knows what it's like to be at the bottom, and he knows what it's like to need grace. And that's what comes through, that uh, he, because he has experienced grace in some way, he wants to bestow that kind of grace and show that kind, same kind of kindness towards others. And so I think that's the important thing for us here, uh, is that for all of us, that we want to be sensitive to those who need grace. And remember, that's what they need, is grace. Now, that grace can be very, that, that might be unvarnished confrontation I mean, I'm not sure, you know, each situation calls for um, wisdom on how to handle it. We don't consider grace to be merely sentimental. Grace is speaking the truth in love. But you could see that coming through. And that, that, that's what I would want us to take away from that is, is that uh, we deal with situations honestly. If someone is dealing, someone's struggling with an addiction, let's, let's call it what it is. Typically, there is a sin at the root of it. That has to be addressed, but we address it as someone who has also experienced the grace of God in a transformative way.
1: So I, I did watch uh, Friends in the 90s, and in fact, uh, many of you will know it's it's enjoyed quite the revival among the younger generations now because of streaming access and those kind of things. And Matthew Perry was hilarious, absolutely hilarious. I'm not necessarily recommending the show. There's certainly a lot of raunchiness uh, associated with it, but he was a fantastic actor, a great comedian. His his timing, his comedic timing was impeccable, and that's part of the fun of that show and even of his character. At the same time, for what it, what we might take away as, as Christians, brothers and sisters, as well as ministry leaders or pastors, first is I appreciate his honesty over the last couple of decades and even the memoir that he wrote. Uh, I can think of his Larry King, uh, Larry King Live uh, interview that he did a number of years ago, just being honest about his struggles. And it, it takes a deep amount of courage to bring that out in public when you're such a public figure already and you're supposed to keep up appearances I really appreciate his honesty, and I know that that encourages and emboldens other people to come forward with their struggles. At the same time, for, for ministry leaders and just everyday ordinary Christians, there are how many Matthew Perrys sat next to you at church just this past Sunday and will sit next to you next Sunday? And so for ordinary Christians, just being sensitive to um, what kind of struggles are the people around us having that they're hiding, and how might we able, be able to kind of attune our own antennas to notice those things, to have enough care for them, to ask them about those things, and then especially to pastors, to have the professional connections. Um, Make sure that you know your own limits, know when, I just don't know how to go, how to help this person beyond prayer and general counsel. They need a specialization. They need a a professional in counseling or psychology or psychiatry or beyond. Um, Have those connections so that you can plug your people in. I think sometimes the best shepherding that we can do is a really good and wise referral. Uh, and not pretending like we we can fix all these things ourselves. Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping
3: students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts.
1: To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit
2: sebts.edu slash give. Why does every human being have dignity and worth? And why is this so important to emphasize this in this moment? To discuss this today, we're so glad to have with us on the
1: podcast Mr. Matthew Sorens. Matthew is the VP of Advocacy and Policy for World Relief. He also serves as the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table and is the co-author of multiple books, including Welcoming the Stranger. Matthew, thank you for joining us today.
0: Yeah, so glad to be with you.
1: So what is World Relief?
0: So World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization. We're actually the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, So we started about 80 years ago in response to a a mass displacement crisis at the end of World War II. There was a church in the Boston area that wanted to come together with other churches to respond to this incredible suffering and displacement in the wake of of the war in Europe. And so at the time, we were the, the National Association of Evangelicals War Relief Commission, And in time, that brought it in scope to not just that one crisis, but to other crises around the world, and we became world relief. So uh, we've worked now for about 80 years with local churches in more than 100 countries over those 80 years uh, to care for people who are in situations of vulnerability, including here in the U.S. and and actually North Carolina as well as several Mm -hmm. other states uh, working to resettle refugees and provide services to other immigrants in the U.S.
2: So about how many churches are involved with World Relief?
0: It's a lot. I don't have actually numbers for our international programs, and the numbers would be even larger there. But in the U.S., it's about 1,000 around our different sites around the country. And those numbers, I mean, being involved, of course, we have different ways of measuring that. If it's like active involvement on a week-to-week basis versus, you know, a one-time event here and there. But we have a lot of churches that will do what we call good neighbor teams. So that is basically Mm -hmm. a, a team from a local church that comes alongside a newly arriving refugee family as their first arriving in the country. World Relief works with the U.S. government, so we know when that family is arriving at the airport, and we'll work with a team from a church to uh, be there, ideally from when they arrive, and even before that to have an apartment set up, and then to just walk with them relationally. We ask churches to make a six-month commitment. Uh, We not so secretly actually hope that it becomes a you know, a lifelong friendship beyond just that initial commitment. But we can't make ask people to make lifelong commitments when they sign up as volunteers. Um, but you know, we've been doing this uh, since at least the 1970s. So we've had a long, a long history of being able to bring together local churches to help people in that adjustment to life in a new community. And and in the process, uh, many of those people who are arriving are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of them, the reason mm-hmm. they were persecuted and became refugees was their faith in Jesus. And there's the unique opportunity to. To stand with them and frankly, to learn from them. And, and the flip side of that, there's people who don't yet know Jesus. And there's uh, the opportunity there as people build relationships to be a witness to who Jesus is as well.
2: Church that I just finished being an interim, they, there's a wonderful Ukrainian family that's there that's, uh, that's come to the U.S. through your, your ministry. And, and like I said, they're just a wonderful Christian family. Uh, what's your role with World Relief?
0: My role is I lead our our very small advocacy and policy team. So it's a three-person team out of a staff of more than 2,000 globally. So Mm -hmm. uh, most of our role is the -the on-the-ground work. You know, here in the the Triangle area, we have a team out of of Durham that was working with local churches. My role is to then look at some of the public policy issues that impact the communities that we serve, whether that's uh, public health policies that affect the communities that we serve in sub-Saharan Africa or refugee resettlement policies here in the United States. So bringing... Uh, the the voice of the church into some of those conversations as well. And, and we do that really closely with the Evangelical Immigration Table, which you mentioned. So that's uh, made up of World Relief, as well as the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, right. the National Association of Evangelicals, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, several other hmm. national Christian groups that have come together and said, you know, on, on a number of themes, including this idea of people being made in the image of God, but also, you know, affirming things like the role of government and being uh, respecting governing authorities, uh, respecting the rule of law, Yes, looking at secure borders, but also saying how do we keep families together, bringing together these different principles that we think are guided by Scripture and asking how can we both encourage our elected officials to apply those principles to public policies, as well as help the church to think in biblically and missiologically informed ways about these issues. This
1: is fascinating. Matthew, you mentioned before we went on the air that you live in Illinois. You're here in North Carolina this week, but you live in Illinois, and it's great to have your daughter with you, Zipporah, who you said we call Zippy. And so if you hear hear hiccups, she has hiccups here on the side. That's okay. It's part of the fun. Um, but where is World Relief based? You said there's 2,000 people around the world, but where is it based?
0: So our home office is in Baltimore, although we have a lot of staff like myself who work kind of international support role who are based remotely. So I actually work out of one of the Chicagoland. We have three offices in Chicagoland. Uh, I'm out in Aurora, sort of west, far western suburbs of Chicago. Hmm. Um, and again, we've got a, a few offices here in North Carolina in Durham, as well as our triad office in, with offices at High Point and Winston-Salem.
1: So let me jump into, you, you've already mentioned the humanitarian crises, and we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Israel in just a minute. But tell us first and foremost, It may seem like an obvious question, but we have to think about this every day. Why, why is there such value and dignity to every human being? How does that drive and inform the way that you guys do your work?
0: Yeah, it's a very fundamental belief. I mean, for us as World Relief, I think for most Christians, hopefully, and it, of course, comes from the very beginning of the Bible where we see that God makes both man and woman in his image. And Christians have historically understood that to mean that human life is precious. Hmm. Uh, uniquely, uh, of course, all of God's creation has, has value because he has created it. But uniquely, human life was made very good in the image of God. And human beings were given this this uh, charge to be fruitful and to multiply, to tend the garden. And we think that that has a few ramifications for how we think about people who are in positions of vulnerability. First of all, just recognizing that they are people. They are human beings. Hmm. Every one of those human lives, whether we're talking about a refugee or an immigrant, regardless of their legal status or the nationality, their their religion, or any number of other categories of vulnerable people, and those who are not yet born, those who are uh, victims of human trafficking, you know, people leaving prison, um, in, you know, groups that World Relief may not work with directly, but every category of person you can think of, regardless of qualifiers, made in God's image, and that means that their life is is worth protecting, their dignity is worth affirming. And then there's another dynamic that I think is uh, maybe overlooked sometimes. And this is perhaps especially true in these conversations that we tend to come into around refugees or immigration, which is that because human life is made in the image of a creator God, human beings also have potential Mm. to create and to contribute. And again, that's true of all people. But uniquely, when we talk about immigration, sometimes the conversations go immediately to what's this going to cost? What are those people going to take? How many jobs will they take? All fair questions and the sort of questions that a good economist can analyze. But well, frankly, good economists don't do cost analyses. They hmm. do cost-benefit analyses. And we make a mistake, one that I think might be rooted in forgetting this dynamic of the Imago Day, if we forget to ask the question of what people are going to contribute. Right, right. And that's true on an economic level. And, you, you know, most economists actually are very big fans of, of immigration. They think that the net economic impact for the United States is positive. But it's true on a number of other levels as well. That these are people, um, Mike Gerson, who used to be a speechwriter for President Bush, said at one point, you know, if we make a mistake, whenever we see any category of people, as just mouths. And we forget that they're also hands and feet and brains, Mm. that they're each person made fearfully and wonderfully in God's image with unique potential to contribute. And I think we've always found that to be true of the refugees and other immigrants that we serve, that yes, there are some needs when people first arrive. Of course, there's some economic costs, but there also are a lot of ways that they're contributing economically, fiscally, but also in the church as well. I mean, a lot of the fastest growth in the church in the United States is happening in largely immigrant congregations who are breathing some new life into into the American church.
2: So let's talk about some of the hot spots. When I watch what's going on uh, on the news, uh, what's going on in the Middle East, there's a couple of emotions that I feel. One is this sense of being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just seems like such a big problem, so enormous. Um, uh, so there is that sense of, of being overwhelmed, almost frustrated. What What can I as an individual do? And yet it's organizations like World Relief that, that address those big things. Uh, what's going on? What are the humanitarian needs uh, in the Middle East? And, and how is World Relief engaged in any of those?
0: Yeah, uh, the situation in the Middle East um, is absolutely, you know, it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking to see. I mean, first of all, the terrorist attack was just horrifying. And there's all sorts of humanitarian issues still pending there. And then whenever you have a war, there are civilians on both right. sides of a conflict who are incredibly vulnerable. Right. And, you know, a, a lot of times people have asked us at World Relief because of the work we do with refugees. Well, we, you'll be resettling refugees. Probably not anytime soon from that conflict. The reality is most of the refugees that we resettle are, you know, Ukraine was a little bit of a unique example or mm-hmm. the Afghan uh, evacuation. But most of the time, we resettle refugees who were resettled 10, 15 years ago. Um, so we're not anticipating this coming to the U.S. anytime soon, but World Relief is working with some partners in uh, both Israel and in doing our best to get into Gaza as well, which is logistically very complicated. But working through local partners to meet some of the the, the very basic needs for you know that come about in in any situation of war. We're still early days in, in figuring out how we can best do that, and it is logistically very complicated. But I think one thing that all of us can be doing, and I mean, it sounds sort of trite, but we really believe it's important is to be praying for those who are vulnerable. And in this situation, there, there are people on both sides who are incredibly vulnerable, who are who are civilians, and that's where we want to remind people of. And, and there are small numbers of Christians um, in these communities as well.
2: Right. Yeah, people, people forget that they're there is a Christian presence in that region. So we have two uh, serious conflicts that, that are getting uh, all the attention, uh, one in Ukraine and the other one, of course, in Gaza. There are places and spots that the need is serious, but it doesn't get much attention. Where, yeah. where are those places that, we, that you would want us to know about? Yeah. That perhaps, perhaps the spotlight doesn't shine.
0: I appreciate you asking that and not to in any way take away from the incredible need in a place like Ukraine or or Israel, the surrounding areas. But one situation that we are really keenly aware of at World Relief is in Sudan. Mm. The war broke out there. I mean, they've had tensions for many years. But the, the war there has been going on for not quite a year yet, but it's, it's an incredibly devastating situation. The number of dis- people displaced has been incredible. Actually, I think it was probably in God's providence. Uh, we could clearly see that now. But uh, just about a year ago, World Relief actually opened up operations in Chad, um, which is the t- primary country that people have been fleeing to from Sudan. We're actually also we have a very large staff in Sudan. Uh, in fact, more than 80 percent of our staff have been displaced by the mm. conflict at this point, mm. some of them outside of the country, and some of them are picking up their work in Chad. But there are others who are displaced within Sudan who are still doing what they can. And likewise, in, in Chad, we've what we originally planned to be more of a community development focus and is to become a, a, a refugee response very quickly. And the numbers are very large, as you know, in some ways rivaling something like Ukraine. But as you said, it's far less um, notable. In fact, a, a colleague of mine, Gemta, he's based in Ethiopia, but he leads all of our disaster response work. And I talked to him not long ago. He, he was, has been along the border with Ukraine when that conflict broke out and helped uh, work with local partners, churches and others, both in Ukraine and in the bordering countries to respond there. And we continue to do that work. It's really important. Uh, but he said, you know, a few months later, I was in Chad at the border with, with Darfur in Sudan. And their need is very similar, but the big difference is the response. There's almost no humanitarian response. Hmm. It's not the whole world, you know, rallying to care, which we are so grateful has happened. With well, the well help us situation.
2: understand the need. What, what, what? If you can describe for us, what is it like for? refugees to show up what do they have what do they not have what's spell out for us some of the particulars so we might understand it a little better
0: you know i think especially a situation like sudan these are often people who had very little to begin with i mean they're in one of the poorest countries in the world to start with and then you have these this violence break out between different sides and again it's, it's civilians who get stuck in the middle very often in fact, Gemta, who uh, had actually been our Sudan Country Director for many years, he told me a story of being there in Chad, on the you know just outside of, of the, across the Sudanese border, and seeing uh, uh, an individual who he had actually worked with when he lived in Sudan and ministered in Darfur, and has come across the border with basically nothing. I mean, they have they had basically fled the little that they had, and they have nothing with them. And the humanitarian response in terms of basic needs, food. You know, shelter, we're not usually talking homes, but like it could be tents for the short term, Mm -hmm. Um, clothing, basic medical attention. It can be very hard to come by in those situations.
2: And I expect this could be especially difficult for children and, and women who have children.
0: And globally, when we talk about refugees, we're talking, you know, roughly half of those people are children. And, of course, I mean, half our women are think Matthew, give,
1: give us a sense of the numbers here. How many people are we talking about in some of these areas?
0: Well, I mean, you can you can zero in to any particular situation. But globally, we're at the point now where the, the best estimates are the number of refugees is above 35 million, which, I mean, when I started working at World Relief in 2006, the numbers were like 14 million, 15 million. So just in, I mean, just a relatively short amount of time. The number of people – and legally, a refugee is someone who has left their country of origin. So that doesn't account th- count those who are internally displaced within any given mm-hmm. country uh, because of a well-founded fear of persecution, specifically on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a fairly precise definition. It's not everyone who's migrated. Um, which people migrate for lots of reasons. Some of them are really understandable. If you're fleeing you know, economic hardship, that, that's understandable, mm-hmm. absolutely. But they don't fit your but criteria. They don't, they don't fit the legal definition of a refugee, of a which refugee. is specifically yeah. someone fleeing per- a well-founded fear of persecution, whether that's because of their ethnicity, their faith, uh, you know, their uh, political opinion. And those numbers, I mean, my mind doesn't quite know what to do with 35 million people. Like, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that number of people. But what we have found is often it's when you know one person. Uh, And the the beauty of of refugee resettlement settlement um, is, you know, I have a family from Burundi who lives in my house. They're an amazing family that I'm really grateful to have as friends. They're believers. In fact, very strong believers. Um, we ha- you know, I've had friends, um, from Ukraine over the years and, you know, some, some, almost everyone I already knew here for was from Ukraine has somebody back in the country who has been directly affected by the war. Yeah. Um, when you know individuals and it's not just, you know, the statistics or the few stories on television, it brings home that these are, you know, these are people made in the image of God, just the same as every one of us and people for whom for Jesus died, people whom God loves you know, profoundly. Often they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, sometimes they're not, and there's an opportunity for relationship there. Um, but very often, these are people who have relied on their faith in Jesus through some of this hardship as well.
1: I want to ask you about that, because oftentimes it seems these conversations uh, become so politicized, and especially when we're kind of distanced from them, mm-hmm. right? It uh I, I've, I've heard even uh, people from uh, from my community, more conservative communities, they hear these kind of conversations and they immediately think that sounds more like MSNBC than it does the people I like to listen to. And especially from a Christian perspective, uh, you might even at times hear it layered as really, we just need to share the gospel with people. Don't worry about all the humanitarian stuff. How do you respond to that when you hear that kind of sort of extreme yeah. type language or opinion? And maybe sometimes it's well meant, but ill informed. I don't know. How, how do you respond to that? I mean, my hope would be that
0: we don't sound like MSNBC, and frankly, we don't sound like Fox News yeah. or CNN <laughs> or even the local newspaper, but that we sound like like, like the Bible. Yeah, and, and,
2: the New Testament. Yeah, right? yeah exactly.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's and that, to be really clear, the New Testament doesn't tell you how many refugees should come to the United States each year. I'm not going to claim that. All the, those are some prudential decisions that we, have, we might advocate for on a policy level. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how do you treat the person who moves into your neighborhood, who's right. from a different country— right. Um, who has fled one of these circumstances. I, I don't think that there's that many different perspectives biblically on that. You love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And in case we want to, you know, it's easy for us to be like the legal scholar in Luke chapter 10 who you know who asks, well, who is my neighbor? Yeah. And wants to justify himself. So he's looking for as narrow of a definition as possible. Right. Jesus doesn't really give us that option. He responds with the story of the Good Samaritan, which is, uh, you know, a, a person who, uh, a Samaritan, who cares for a vulnerable stranger, traveler, in desperate need of a different religion, a different ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So whoever else their neighbor might be, it's that person.
2: Yeah, and he shows the kind of care that one would really expect to be given to a family member. That's right. Yeah, exactly.
0: And he, I mean, the other thing that's worth noticing is he puts himself at a little bit of risk to do so. I mean, there's probably reasons the priest and the Levite in that story go by on the other side. There might be multiple reasons, but one might be sort of basic self-preservation. Like you don't stop and linger on a dangerous road to Jericho late at night where people get beaten and robbed and are left to die. But the hero of the story is the guy who does stop and linger to help someone who's in need. And I mean, that frankly reminds me of some of the churches that we've partnered with over Mm. the years in parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, who are caring for really vast numbers of people who've recently come across a border into their communities. And they're often, often you have churches that are serving really selflessly and not naively, they're not unaware that there could be some risks, but they were never under the impression that following Jesus was going to be totally safe, hmm. especially in many of those parts of the world. Like they, they were not that wasn't, you know, something that they felt was promised to them. Um, the irony for that is an American Christian and, you know, I'm an American. I have the cultural values that most Americans have. Safety is very important to me. You know, we I just think about like I close my emails sometimes even without thinking with statements like, take care, mm-hmm. be safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these nice sentiments. And yet the biblical command is take courage. Mm. be not afraid. Mm. And not because we live in a great, powerful country, though we pretty much do and actually has a pretty good record of protecting us, but because we have a great and powerful God in whose hands we are at least eternally completely secure. Mm. And the irony in all of that, I mean, I think we would be called to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if it was risky. In the U.S. context. We are a very different context than in certain other parts of the world. When a refugee comes to the United States, they've gone through what the Heritage Foundation and others have examined and found to be the most thorough vetting that our country has for any category of visitor or immigrant who's entering the country. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly thorough process and an incredibly effective process. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go back to the signing of the Refugee Act in 1980, so we've had about 3 million refugees resettled since that time nationally. Um, you you can't find a single case where an American citizen has lost their life in uh, an Islamist terrorist attack perpetrated by someone who came in through that refugee vetting process. Now, that's not to say that could never happen or we shouldn't expect our government to do their job to vet people. We should, but I worry sometimes that as the church, we focus so much on the question of is this safe? Is the government doing their job? And maybe not looks very hard for answers that we forgot to ask the question that was asked of Jesus, which is, who is my neighbor? Uh, And if it's a family arriving at the Raleigh Durham airport, to be there to welcome them.
1: So let me ask you about that. So we even represented in this room. We have some who are much more out in the country, some that are a bit in suburbia, and then many in our community who live deeper down in Raleigh, for example. Um, what are practical ways that churches in all three of those areas, whether deep deeper into the urban side of things, more suburban, or out in the country, how can we how can we be more mindful of yeah. these kind of needs and refugees in our areas?
0: I mean, one thing I would say is there there are immigrants beyond, like refugees are generally resettled through organizations like World Relief in particular communities. There are immigrants with complicated stories and are also neighbors who are called to love Mm -hmm. all across that spectrum. I mean, if you look at agricultural work in the United States, it's largely carried out by immigrants um, and often very isolated immigrants Mm -hmm. working in some hard circumstances. Mm -hmm. But even in terms of refugees in particular, um, you know, frankly, World Relief and other resettlement agencies are going a little further out than we used to because housing has become a real challenge in the last few years. Um,
2: housing is a challenge in the United States. Yeah. That
0: is. And, and that used to be true in a few communities like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it's almost everywhere. Like what we used to think of affordable housing doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. So we have to adjust our standards and maybe look a little further. The other thing I would say is there's, you know, even beyond where World Relief could say we could, you know, work with a church to care for a family beyond sort of that geographic radius. Um, there's another program that the State Department has created in the last year called the Welcome Corps that World Relief is also a part of that will actually allow a a team from a church or any uh, small group of people, but for our purposes, we're usually looking at churches, um, to sponsor a refugee family. So actually come forward with some of the funds that it costs to help resettle them, help, you know, provide some of their initial costs for housing and that sort of thing. And that's something that World Relief can help with too, really anywhere in the country. If if it's you don't happen to be near to a World Relief office uh, like our Durham office, and we could, you know, we could do that anywhere in the United States at this point.
2: Well, Matthew, tell us about some of your books.
0: Sure. You know, the first book that I did, which I did with my colleague Jenny Yang, former colleague, um, was called Welcoming a Stranger. And the goal of that book was really to ask the question of how do we apply some of these biblical questions to some of the legal and policy questions around not just refugees, but immigration more generally. Even these complicated ethical questions about what about someone who is not here lawfully? Right. How do we both ev- value the rule of law and yet also affirm the dignity of every human person? The second book I did in a few years ago with, uh, for Moody Publishers with a couple of other colleagues is called Seeking Refuge, and it is really focused in particularly on refugee resettlement and the global refugee crisis. So not this broad category of immigration, um, but the kind of more precise uh, subset of immigrants who have fled a well-founded fear of persecution. And honestly, that came about, and we wrote that in 2016, as a lot of Americans were asking questions with Syrian refugees mm-hmm. kind of in the news. Frankly, something that at World Relief we used to think was uncontroversial. It had never been really a partisan issue up until that point. became rather partisan and and polarized. And Mm -hmm. we wanted to explain why we, since the 70s, have believed in this ministry model. And then the most recent book is called Inalienable. I did that with uh, Eric Costanza, who's a Southern Baptist pastor in Oklahoma, and Daniel Yang, who was at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, looking at how does the American church actually learn both from the global church and from those members of the global church who end up in our own communities mm-hmm. through refugee resettlement, through immigration, um, and how do we learn mutually from one another? And uh, you know, that's my view is that's how God designed the church to be a one body with many different parts. And sometimes I think the American church, you know, we presume that we have a lot to offer, and we do, mm-hmm. but we sometimes might miss that we also have a lot to learn.
2: Mm-hmm. We have listeners all around the world, but um, here in North Carolina, I think it would be a rare church that doesn't have to face the issue of how do we minister to uh, immigrants and refugees in one way or another. How can people follow you and your work?
0: I'm not there as much as I used to be, but I'm on Twitter at Matthew Zorn. So M-A-T-T-H-G-W-S-O-E-R-E-N-S. And then World Relief, we're always coming up with new resources to help. Really, you know, our job is to empower churches to serve the vulnerable. So we're always trying to figure out what are the resources that can help the church to do that well both, you know, biblical and theological resources in terms of sort of the why of the work that we do, as well as the more practical, tactical, how do we do this work well?
1: Matthew, we should have started with this, but I'm just curious before we wrap up, how did you get involved with uh, World Relief in the first place?
0: So I was a student at Wheaton College up in Illinois, and I signed up to do a six-month internship in Nicaragua and was assigned to World Relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worked with our, our team there, which uh, was a real privilege. Came back from six months in Nicaragua and had learned Spanish pretty well and loved World Relief and this mission of empowering churches of serving the vulnerable. Didn't really know precisely what I wanted to do, but uh, World Relief had it on an office. Actually, we leased our space from Wheaton College, so right down the street from where I was finishing up my undergrad. And I applied for a job and got turned down, but applied for another job and got turned down, but on the third try, they <laughs> hired me in our legal <laughs> services division. And honestly, I didn't know anything about immigration. It wasn't necessarily that I felt like God is calling me to work with immigrants my whole life, but... You know, as I got to interact with with lots of local churches that were trying to figure out how to serve immigrants well. Mm. Um, And frankly, lots of churches composed primarily of immigrants, which is a lot of the churches in the Chicagoland area. Mm. And at the same time, I moved into an apartment complex where most of my neighbors were refugees Mm. from one country or another. Mm. And it became a very personal question. You know, when Jesus asks us to love our neighbors, he doesn't just mean the person who lives next door. But that was, you know, the neighbors I was trying to figure out were the people who live next door who were from a number of different countries. Um, and so that very much motivates me, and yeah, it, it motivates the, the work that I do now, which is more on some of the broader structural issues, mm-hmm. because those issues have a very profound impact on on my neighbors. I go to a Spanish-speaking church, so it, it's the people that I worship with on Sunday as well.
1: Matthew, that's that's encouraging on so many levels, not not least um, hearing about all that World Relief is doing and getting the insights from your uh, sort of expert perspective, but also hearing you have a family that lives in your home. Uh, you got into this not because it was a job on offer, but because you really uh, you were living in these communities; these were your neighbors, and you wanted to be a part of that. So, thank thank you for sharing that, and thank you for the work that you're doing.
0: Yeah, thank you. We we've worked with lots of good alum from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we love the the people that you're you're putting out as well. So, I'm glad to be with you all.
2: And now it's time for on my bookshelf. Uh, the part of the show where our guests share what they're reading right now. Today's On My Bookshop is going to be a little different. We're glad to have with us author Jennifer Blakely to talk about her new book, Finding Grace, the inspiring true story of therapy dogs bringing comfort, hope, and love to a hurting world. Jim, thank you for taking a few minutes to join us.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: So what is Finding Grace all about?
4: Well, Finding Grace tells the true story of Larry Randolph, who's a man familiar with devastating pain and loss, who one morning as he's reading the Bible, uh, feels God call him to do something with therapy dogs. The only trouble is he doesn't have a dog, and he certainly doesn't understand why God seems to be impressing the phrase therapy dogs into his heart. So the book follows Larry's journey from borrowing a dog to visit a retired nun to founding a therapy dog ministry called Canines for Christ, which now has over a a thousand volunteers Mm. in 40 states and across six different countries. And so Finding Grace is a story of trust and faith and canine companionship. But even more than that, it's a story that invites readers to pause and ponder, all pun intended, uh, what God might be calling you to do and will hopefully inspire you to take that first step of faith.
2: So, how long ago did he begin this ministry?
4: He started the ministry in July of two thousand seven.
2: And so, you say has a thousand volunteers. I take it this is across the United States, across uh, it is. It's um,
4: yeah, they have volunteers in four. I think it's forty states across the U.S. and in at least six different countries. And it's just a, a, they have a training format that, um, that the dog has to be AKC, you know, good canine certified. Um, but they help people just partner with their dogs to bring comfort and ultimately the hope of the gospel um, into the world through these dogs.
2: So does your book tell people or tell the readers how they might get in contact with this ministry? It
4: does. Yes. Yeah. On the end of the book gives uh, a contact information if they want to volunteer with their own dogs. Absolutely. So
2: so when we think about therapy dogs, um, uh, listeners to the podcast will know that this year's theme for the CFC or the Bush Center uh, is challenges to humanity. And one of those challenges uh, is mental health, uh, why do you think it is that therapy dogs have such a positive impact on people struggling with uh, either physical, emotional, or mental challenges? What is it about a therapy dog?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's really quite simple. Therapy dogs offer us the gift of their presence. They don't expect anything of us. They don't need us to put on a fake smile or pretend to be okay when we're not, They don't see the mask that we often feel like we have to wear around other people and they're not bothered by big displays of emotion or lack thereof. And, you know, in a day and age when unfortunately so many people have been hurt by other people, um, acts of violence, school shootings, you know, abuse, therapy dogs are often able to offer comfort where another person might not be able to at first. The dog can act as a bridge toward healing, And the fact is, therapy dogs really just want to be present with us. And in doing so, whether people realize it or not, they're pointing us to God's own heart, to his presence, to his perfect presence with us, to the God who invites us to come as we are, who sees us and loves us as we truly are, not for the mask we wear, the things that we do, but because he is love and he loves us. And a dog, a well-trained therapy dog just brings that home in a way that that people often can't and then as we start to pet the dog and find our heart rate slowing just a little bit as we're able to maybe take a deep breath for the first time in a while or as the dog wags his tail or kisses our cheek or does a silly trick and we find ourselves laughing even if just for a moment experiencing a feeling of joy in the midst of a season of depression we can find ourselves even if just for that moment changed by the dog's presence which Is such a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to transform us. And of course, not every therapy dog visit leads to a big spiritual transformation or a mental health improvement, but those seeds can be planted and people can get a glimpse of hope, true hope, ushered in by a wet nose and a wagging tail and pointing our hearts to the life-changing power of God's presence with us.
2: Jen, you sound like a dog person. A uh, I grew up. I grew up with uh, both dogs and cats, and I'm sure a therapy cat is probably a thing. And and I do know friendly cats. But yeah. uh, let's face it, um, we don't. When we think of cats, unconditional love is not something that comes to mind uh, immediately. <laughs> uh, so tell us once again what is the name of your book?
4: The name of the book is Finding Grace.
2: Uh, and where where can they find the book?
4: Um, Finding Grace is available wherever books are sold. So your favorite local bookstore or um, online retailer um, should have the book there.
2: So... Your name is Jen Blakely, and I can imagine someone doing a search right now <laughs>
4: yes. trying to find
2: your book. Why don't you spell your name so they'll sure. know that it's spelled just a little different than it's pronounced? Yes,
4: everyone pronounces it bleakly. I answer to either. Um, but Jennifer um, Blakely, B-L-E-A-K-L-E-Y. And I'm online at jenniferblakely.com, I'm on social media, at Jen Blakely. The easiest way to find me is probably hashtag poverbs. I have a line of devotional books called poverbs, which combines proverbs with animal stories. So that's probably the easiest way to find me.
2: Well, thanks, Jen, for sharing about your book. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating and a brief review.